The Tower Treasure, Chapter 9, Red Hair The arrest of Henry Robinson caused a sensation in Bayport, for the caretaker of the Tower Mansion was one of the least men in the city whom one would have suspected of dishonesty. There was a great deal of public sympathy for the family, but little for the accused, as most people seemed to take it for granted that he would not have been arrested if he had not had something to do with the crime. But the Hardy boys were not satisfied. "'I'm positive Henry Robinson is innocent,' said Frank to his brother the next morning. "'There's a great deal about this case that hasn't come to surface yet. I have a sort of sneaking idea that the man who stole Chet Morton's car had something to do with this.' "'He was a criminal, that much is certain,' agreed Joe. He stole an automobile, and he tried to hold up the ticket office. I'd like to go back to the place where we saw the wrecked car. You never know what evidence we might find. There might be something there that would identify the chap. I'm with you. Let's go this morning. So within the hour, the boys were on their motorcycle, speeding along the shore road towards the place where the speed fiend's car had been wrecked in the bushes. "'I'd certainly like to do something to help clear Mr. Robinson,' said Frank. "'It's pretty tough on Slim and his mother and sisters. "'We probably won't be able to do very much if Dad can't clear him. "'I don't think we can help a great deal, but it's worth a while trying. "'It sure is. "'And I've had a hunch all along that we didn't investigate the wreck "'and that car close enough. "'Well, we'll make a thorough job of it this time.' When the boys reached the scene of the wreck, they found the smashed car just where they had seen it last. The tires had been taken, and some of the accessories had, that had escaped destruction had been stripped from the automobile. But the car had been so badly smashed that there were few evidences of disturbance. Leaving their motorcycles by the side of the road, the lads plunged down into the bushes and busied themselves examining the wreckage. Joe hunted through the side pockets in hope that there might be papers or some other means of identification, but in this he was disappointed. There were no license plates, but Frank managed to secure the engine number, and this he jotted down in a notebook he carried. Perhaps this will give us a clue, although I have an idea that the fellow got this car in the same way he got Chet's. It's probably a stolen automobile. For a time, they rummaged around among wreckage without success. Then at last, Frank gave a low cry. "'Here's something!' he exclaimed. "'Look!' Joe came over to where he was standing, and Frank plucked something from the front seat of the wrecked car. "'Red hair!' In his hand, Frank held a small tuft of vivid red hair. It was very coarse in texture, and the surprising part of it was that the hairs were not separate but were attached in a sort of tough linen. "'Why, it's part of a wig,' said Frank, examining the hair more closely. "'You're right,' agreed his brother. "'No human hair ever grew like that. Part of the fellow's wig was torn when the car was smashed up, and that explains why Herity and his witness couldn't agree on the color of the fellow's hair,' exclaimed Joe in excitement." 
I see it now. The man didn't wear the wig when he held up the steamboat office, and the minute he reached the car, he put it on again. And that explains why Brown saw a red-haired man driving away in Chet's Roadster, why Harrity was positive that the man wasn't red-headed. That's a real clue, exclaimed Joe. We ought to tell Dad about this. And we will, too, said Frank, beginning to scramble through the bushes back towards the road. He put the fragments of the red wig carefully in an inner pocket, and then the Hardy boys started back towards Bayport. The clue was the clue was slight, of course, but still it served to clear up the disagreement as to the color of the hold-up man's hair. It also served to prove exclusively that the man who had passed Frank and Joe on the shore road at such breakneck speed and who had later wrecked his car, was the same man who had stolen Chet's roaster and had attempted to hold up the steamboat ticket office. "'I guess Dad will think we aren't such poor detectives after all,' Joe salted, as they brought their motorcycles to a stop in the yard of the Hardy's home. Their father was in the library, but in their excitement the lads forgot to rap at the door and rushed into the room without ceremony. "'Dad, we found a clue,' cried Joe, when he saw his father sitting in the huge oak desk, and then he fell back embarrassed when he saw that there was someone else in the room. "'Beg pardon,' said Frank, and the boys would have retreated. But Mr. Hardy's visitor turned round, and they saw that it was Perry Robinson. "'It's only me,' said Slim. "'Don't go.' "'Perry has been trying to shed a little more light on the tower of robbery,' explained Mr. Hardy. "'But—' "'What's the clue you're talking of?' "'It isn't about the robbery,' replied Frank, "'although it might have something to do with it, for all we know. "'It's about the red-headed man who stole Chet's car "'and who tried to hold up the steamboat ticket office. "'What about him?' "'This,' said Frank, "'taking the fragment of red hair from his pocket "'and showing it to his father. "'The fellow wore a wig.' "'Mr. Hardy examined the little tuft of hair closely.' "'Where did you find it?' he asked. "'In the wreckage of that smashed car,' Mr. Hardy nodded. "'That seems like a pretty good chain of evidence. "'The man who passed you on the road wrecked the car, "'then stole Chet's roadster and afterwards tried to hold up the ticket office. "'When he failed in that, he abandoned the roadster. "'He wore a red wig.' He took off occasionally to confuse passers. If we could only find the wig, we might be able to get further information. Do you think it might help us to solve the tower robbery? asked Perry. Possibly. The man was evidently a professional thief, explained Frank. If he was smart enough to wear a wig, he was evidently an old-timer at the game. And if he failed in the ticket office hold-up, who knows, but he might have been hanging around the city waiting for another chance. "'Gosh, you might be right at that!' exclaimed Perry. "'I was just telling your father that I saw a strange man lurking about the grounds of Tower Mansion two days before the robbery. I didn't think anything of it at the time, and in the shock of Dad's arrest I forgot about it. Did you get a good look at him?' "'Could you describe him?' asked the detective. "'I'm afraid I couldn't.' It was in the evening, and I was sitting by the window studying. I happened to look up, and I saw this fellow moving about under the trees near the wall. Later on, I heard one of the dogs barking in another part of the grounds. 
and shortly afterwards I saw someone running across the lawn, but I thought it was probably just a tramp. Did he wear a hat or a cap? As near as I can remember, it was a cap. His clothes were dark. And you couldn't see his face, no. Well, it's not much to go on, but it might be a link up with Frank's idea that the man who stole the roadster might have still been hanging around. Mr. Hardy thought deeply for a few minutes. I'm going to bring all these facts to Mr. Applegate's attention, and I'm also going to have a talk with the police authorities. I don't think they have enough evidence to warrant holding your father, Perry. Do you think you can have him released? The, the boy asked eagerly. I'm sure of it. In fact, I think Mr. Applegate is beginning to realize now that he made a mistake, and I don't think the police are any too anxious to go ahead with the case on meager evidence in their possession. It would be wonderful if we can have Dad back with us again, said Perry, although it won't quite be the same. He'll be under a cloud as long as this mystery isn't cleared up. "'and, of course, Mr. Applegate won't employ him any more. "'All the more reason why we should get busy and clear up this affair,' "'returned Mr. Hardy. "'You boys can help.' "'How? "'By keeping your eyes and ears open and by using your wits. "'That's all there is to detective work. "'Well, you can just bet that if it will clear Slim's dad, "'we'll be listening and looking at every clue there is,' "'Joe assured his father.' Chapter 10. An Important Discovery When the Hardy boys returned from school next afternoon, they saw that a crowd had collected about the bulletin board in the post office. "'Wonder what's up now?' asked Joe, pushing his way forward. Boy-like, he was able to make his way through the crowd with agility of an eel, and Frank was not slow in following. On the board was a large poster, the ink on which was scarcely dry. At the top, in enormous black letters, they read, Thousand-dollar reward. Underneath it, slightly smaller type, came the following. The above reward will be paid for information leading to the arrest of the person or persons who broke into Tower Mansion and stole from a safe in the library jewels and securities as follows. Then came a list of the jewels and negotiables, bonds that had been taken from the tower mansion, the jewels being fully described, and numbers of bonds being given. It was announced that the reward was offered by Herd Applegate. "'Why, that must mean that the charge against Mr. Robinson has been dropped!' exclaimed Joe. "'It looks like it. Let's go and see if we can find Slim.' All about them, people were commenting on the size of the reward." and there were many expressions of envy for the person who should be fortunate enough to solve the mystery. A thousand dollars, said Frank, as they made their way out of the post office. That's a lot of money, Joe. I'll say it is, and there's no reason why we haven't as good a chance of getting it as anyone else. Why not? Let's get at this case in real earnest, of course. We would do what we could anyway, but a thousand dollars? It's worth trying for. Dad and the police are barred from the reward, for it's their duty to find the thief, if they can. But if we find him, we get the money. And we'll have the satisfaction of clearing Mr. Robinson, too. Joe, let's get at this case in earnest. We have some clues right now, and we can follow them up. I'm with you. 
but they're slim now. Perry Robinson was coming down the street towards them. He looked much happier than he had been the previous evening, and when he saw the Hardy Boys, his face lighted up. Dad is free, he told them, thanks to your father. The charges has been dropped. Gee, but I'm glad to hear that, exclaimed Joe. I see they're offering a reward. Your father convinced Mr. Applegate that it must have been an outside job, that is, that it was the work of a professional crook, and the police admitted there wasn't much evidence against Dad, so they let him go. I tell you, it was a great thing for my mother and sisters. They were almost crazy with worry. No wonder, commented Frank. What is your father going to do now? I don't know, Slim admitted heavily. Of course, we've had to move out of Tower Mansion. Mr. Applegate said that while the charge had been dropped, he wasn't altogether convinced in his own mind that Dad hadn't had something to do with it. He dismissed him. That's tough luck. But he'll be able to get another job somewhere. I'm not so sure about that. People aren't likely to employ a man that's been suspected of stealing. Dad tried two or three places this afternoon, but he was turned down. The Hardy boys were silent. They were sorry for the Robinsons, for they knew only too well that the families were badly off financially and that the view of the robbery, it would indeed be difficult for Mr. Robinson to get another position. We've rented a small house just outside the city, Slim went on. It is cheap and we'll have to get along. There was no false pride about Perry Robinson. His face, he faced the facts as they came and made the best of them. But if Dad doesn't get a job, it will mean that I'll have to go to work. But Slim, you'd have to quit school. I can't help that. I wouldn't want to, but, you know, I was trying for class medal this year. But oh well. The Hardy boys realized how much it would mean for their chum to leave school at that stage. Perry Robinson was an ambitious boy and one of the cleverest in the class. He had always wanted to continue his studies and go to a university, and his teachers had predicted a brilliant career for him. Now it seemed that all his ambitions would have to be thrown overboard because of this misfortune. Don't worry, Slim, comforted Frank. Joe and I are going to plug away with this affair until we get to the bottom of it. It's mighty good of you fellows, said Slim gratefully. I won't forget it in a hurry. You've been pretty amazing on all of this. Ah, shucks, muttered Frank, embarrassed. It's the reward we're after. Applegate is offering a thousand dollars. Oh, I know it isn't altogether the reward. You would do it to help us anyway, and you know it. Look what you've already done. Well, we're going to get busy, Joe said hastily. See you later, Slim. Don't worry too much. I think everything will be all right. Slim tried to smile, but it was evident that he was deeply worried, and when he walked away, it was not with the light springing carefree step his chum had previously known. What's the first move, Frank? We had better get a full description of those jewels. Perhaps the thief tried to pawn them. We can call all the pawn shops and see what we can find out. Then we may be able to get a line on the thief. You know he might pawn something here. If he had to have money with which to get out of town. Good idea. 
Do you think Applegate will give us a list? We won't have to ask him. Dad should have all that information. Let's go and ask him right now. But when the lads returned home and asked their father for a description of the jewels, they met with disappointment. I'm quite willing to give you all that information, said Fenton Hardy, but I don't think it would be much use. Furthermore, I'll bet I can tell just what you're going to do. What? You're going to make the rounds of the pawn shops and see if any of the jewels have been turned in. The Hardy boys looked at one another in consternation. How did you ever guess that? asked Frank. Their father smiled. "'Because it's just what I have already done not an hour after I was called on the case, "'and I had a full description of all those jewels in every pawn-shop in the city. "'More than that, the description has been sent to jewelry firms and pawn-shops in other cities near here, "'and also in New York police. "'Here's a duplicate list, if you want it. "'But you'll just be wasting time. I'm going round to the shops.' They are all on the lookout for the stuff. Mechanically, Frank took the list. And I thought it was such a bright idea. It is a bright idea, but it has been used before. Most jewel robberies are solved in just this manner, by tracing the thief when he tries to get rid of the gems. Well, said Joe gloomily, I guess that plan is all shot to pieces. Come on, Frank, we'll think of something else. "'Out after the reward, huh?' said Mr. Hardy, shrewdly. "'Yes, and we'll get it, too. I hope you do. "'But you can't ask me to help you any more than I have done. "'It's my case, too, remember. "'So from now on, you're part of my opposition.' "'It's a go. More power to you, then,' said Mr. Hardy, as he returned to his desk. "'He had a sheaf of reports from shops and agencies in various parts of the state.' through which he had been trying to trace stolen jewels and securities. But in every case the report was the same. There had been no trace of the gems or bonds taken from Tower Mansion. When the boys left their father's study, they went outside and sat on the back steps, silently regarding their motorcycles. "'What shall we do now?' asked Joe. "'I don't know. Dad sure took the wind out of my sails this time, didn't he?' "'I'll say he did.' But it was just as well. Saved us a lot of trouble. We might have been going round to all the pawn shops in the city and not getting anywhere. Looks as if Dad has the inside track on the case anyway. If any of the jewels are turned in, he will be the first to hear of it. What chance have we? I'm hanged if I'll give up, declared Frank with determination. We know that there was a strange man hanging round the tower mansion, and we know that there was a red-headed crook in town. Perhaps those two facts aren't connected, but I think they are. And we know he stole Chet's roadster, and left it in the woods. Yes, and say, Joe, we didn't take much time looking round when we looked at the roadster. What was the use? The roadster was there, and Chet got it back. No, but the man who stole the car had been there, too. Perhaps he left another clue. Joe slapped his knee with an open hand. I never thought of that, Frank. Let's go right back there now. Come on. Eagerly, the boys dashed back over there to their motorcycles. In a few minutes, they were speeding through the streets of Bayport on towards the woods where Chet Morton's roadster had been abandoned. 
They were fired with enthusiasm again, in spite of the momentary setback they had received when their father squelched Frank's plans of going round to the pawn shops. They felt now that they were on a new trail. They came to the abandoned road that led into the woods, and they brought their motorcycles as far as possible, finally leaving them by the roadside and going ahead on foot. Frank located the place where the roadster had been driven off into the woods, for the trees were still bent and broken, and the two boys plunged into the depths of the thickets. At last the hardy boys emerged into the little clearing where the roadster had been found. Everything was just as they had left it. They examined the ground carefully. He might have dropped letters from his pocket or something, but the auto thief had not been careless. There was not even a footprint for the boys to had trampled the ground thoroughly after the roadster had been discovered. If I had only thought of looking for footprints at the time, groaned Joe, in disappointment. Our fingerprints. He must have left fingerprints somewhere about the car, but we covered them up. If he was a professional crook, we could have traced him easily. Too late now. Chet has had his car washed since then. We didn't think of that in time. Their search was without success, and the hardy boys were about to give up in disappointment when Frank left the clearing and began to hunt about in the bushes. I guess we might as well go home, said Joe. We've come hunting for clues too late. If we had only since we had looked for the fingerprints earlier, and he was interrupted by a shout from his brother. Joe, come here quick. I've found something. There was no mistaking the excitement in Frank's voice. Joe lost no time in scrambling through the bushes until he reached his brother's side. Frank was standing in the midst of a thicket, holding up something red and bushy. It's a wig! The red wig! exclaimed Joe, his eyes widening. Not only the wig, replied Frank, but this. Then he bent over and picked up a battered hat from the ground. And this! where he picked up a worn coat. They belonged to the crook. It couldn't have been anyone else. He must have disguised himself here and left the wig and things in the bushes when he abandoned the car. Chapter 11 Mr. Hardy Investigates The Hardy boys looked at one another in growing excitement. What ought we to do about it? asked Joe. I'm going to tell Dad what we found. But didn't he say he would be working on the case on his own and that we would be in opposition? This is different. We have a real clue here, but we don't know how to use it. You can bet Dad will know what to do. He'll act fairly with us. If it leads to anything, he'll see that we get credit for it. I guess you're right, Frank. This is a little too big for us to handle ourselves, but imagine finding that wig. What luck! There's nothing else around here, is there? Let's look. Although the Hardy Boys scoured the woods in the vicinity thoroughly, they found nothing more. But the wig, the hat, and the coat gave promise of interesting developments. Frank hunted through all the pockets of the coat in faint hope of finding something that would identify the previous wearer. But in this, he was disappointed. So they went back to the abandoned road and remounted their motorcycles, returning to Bayport with the articles they had found in the woods. 
Their disappointment had turned to jubilation, for now they felt that they were definitely on the trail of the mysterious man in the red wig, and while there was no connection between the fellow and the thief who had robbed Tower Mansion, Frank had, as he said, a hunch that the auto thief and the robber of the mansion were one and the same man. If we ever lay our hands on that man who stole Chet's roadster, I'll sure have gone a long way towards solving the tower affairs, said Frank to his brother. I may be wrong, but I have an idea that the fellow was a professional crook who first set out to rob the steamboat office. Then, when he was frightened off, he hung round the city and waited for a chance to rob Tower Mansion. Mr. Hardy was still in the library when the boys returned home. The great detective was frankly surprised when his son again entered the room, and he looked up with suspicion, a twinkle in his eye. "'What, more clues?' he exclaimed. "'Surely not so soon.' "'You bet we have more clues,' exclaimed Frank eagerly, "'and real clues this time. "'We've gone to turn them over to you. "'But I thought the two of us were working on this case on your own way. "'Remember, I'm the opposition.' "'Well, to tell the truth, we don't know just what to do with what we found,' admitted Frank. "'And anyway, we know you'll be fair with us, so it doesn't matter. "'Look!' And with that, he tossed the red wig on the table. He kept the coat and hat behind his back. Fenton Hardy leaned forward quickly and picked up the wig with an inquiring glance at his sons. So, he murmured, you found the wig? Then he opened a drawer in his desk and produced the fragment of wig that the boys had found in the smashed car by the road. This has applied to a torn part of the wig itself. It fitted perfectly. It's the wig, all right, he declared. Looking up, where did you find it? By the smashed car? No, hidden in the bushes near the place where Chet's roaster was found. Mr. Hardy whistled solemnly. Good luck, he turned the wig over and over in his hands, carefully examining it under the microscope and then tossed it back on the desk. There aren't so many wigs sold that one can't trace them, he observed. This happens to be made by a small company that doesn't turn out a great many wigs in a year. It's a sort of sideline for them. How can you tell? There's a little mark on the inside that distinguishes the manufacturer, just a trademark, hardly noticeable. And we found these as well, said Frank, handing over the coat and hat. Mr. Hardy's eyes opened wide. Well, well, he exclaimed. You have been busy, haven't you? They were all hidden in the same place, and well hidden, too, I'll warrant. We were sure there must be clues of some kind round the car, so we searched every inch of the woods roundabouts. Good, said Mr. Hardy approvingly. You didn't miss any chances. I'm not saying that these clues will lead to the capture of the fellow, but they will go a long way towards finding him. What should we do with them? Mr. Hardy looked up at his sons and smiled. Well, you've shared your clues with me. So I suppose I may as well share some of my experience with you. What do you say if we go to the city and try to trace up some of these labels? This hat, for instance. And he picked it up from the table, examining the, the band intently. There's a label here. Of course, the hat may have been sold a long time ago, and it isn't likely that the man who sold it would remember who bought it. But... 
There's always the chance that the store may not be far from where the fellow lives. You get my idea? And the coat, too. If we can find any trace of who brought, who bought the wig, we may be able to connect up the other things as well. Gosh, I never thought of that, admitted Frank. It's a slim chance, but as I said before, we can't afford to overlook any chances. I'll take them to the city and see what I can do. It may mean everything, and it may mean nothing. Don't be disappointed if I come back empty-handed. And don't be surprised if I come back with some valuable information. Mr. Hardy tossed the wig, the coat, and the hat into a club bag that was standing open near his desk. The great detective was accustomed to being called away suddenly on strange errands, and he was always prepared to leave at a moment's notice. Not much use starting now, he said, glancing at his watch, but I'll go to the city the first thing in the morning. In the meantime, don't rest on your oars, as the saying goes. Mr. Hardy picked up some papers on his desk, as a hint that the interview was over and the boys left the library. They were in a state of high excitement, for they were confident now that they had made valuable progress in the case, and they were sure that if the wig and the garments could be of any use at all towards locating the crook, Mr. Hardy would be the man to use them. When they went to bed that night, they could hardly sleep. So elated were they over their discovery near the abandoned roadway. He must have been a pretty smart crook, murmured Joe, after they had talked long into the night. That idea about the wig was clever. I'll bet he was experienced. The smarter they are, the harder they fall, replied Joe. It's the experienced crooks that the police always look for. If this fellow has any kind of a record at all, it won't take long for Dad to run him down. I've heard Dad say that there is no such thing as a clever crook. If he has really clever, he wouldn't be a crook at all. Yes, I guess that's right. But it shows that we're not up against any ordinary amateur. This fellow must be a slippery customer. He'll have to be a mighty slippery one now. Once Dad has a few clues to work on, he never lets up till he gets his man. Well, let's hope he gets this one. He'll think a lot more of us as detectives if he does. And with that, the boys fell asleep. When they went down to breakfast the following morning, they found that Fenton Hardy had left for New York on an early morning train. The Hardy boys went to school, but all through the morning they could scarcely keep their minds on their work. Their thoughts were far afield. They were wondering how Fenton Hardy was faring in his quest in New York, and it was not until after Frank had drawn a reprimand from one of the teachers, because he absent-mindedly answered Red Wig when asked to name the capital of Kansas, that they settled down to work and tried to put the affair of the wig and the abandoned clothes far from their minds. Slim Robinson was at school that day, but after four o'clock he confided to the Hardy boys that he was leaving. It's no use, he said. Father can't keep me in school any longer, and it's up to me to pitch in and help the family. I'm to start work tomorrow for a grocery company. And you wanted to go to college, exclaimed Frank. It's a shame. 
It can't be helped, replied Perry, with a grimace. I can consider myself lucky I got this far. I guess I'll have to give up all those ideas now and settling down to learn the grocery business. There's one good thing about it. I'll have a chance to learn it from the ground up. I'm starting in the delivery department. Perhaps in about fifty years I'll be ahead of the firm. You'll make good at whatever you tackle, Joe assured him. But I'm sorry you won't be able to go through college as you wished. Don't give up hope yet, Slim. You never know what may happen. Perhaps you'll find that fellow who did rob Tower Mansion. Both boys wanted to tell their chum about the clues they had discovered the previous day, but the same thought was in their minds, that it would be unwise to raise false hopes. It would go much harder with Perry, they knew, if he began to think the capture of the thief was imminent, only to have the hopes dashed to the earth again. So they said good-bye to him and wished him good luck. Perry tried hard to be cheerful, but his smile was very faint as he turned away from them and walked off down the street. "'Gosh, but I'm sorry for him,' said Frank as they went home. He was such a hard worker in school, and he counted so much on going to college. "'We've got to clear up the tower robbery. It's all there is to it,' declared his brother. "'Perhaps Dad is back by now.' There's a train from New York at three o'clock. Let's hurry home and see. But when the Hardy boys arrived home, they found that their father had not yet returned from the city. We'll just have to be patient, I guess, said Frank. No news is good news. And with this philosophic reflection, the Hardy boys were obliged to comfort themselves against the impatience that possessed them to learn what progress their father was making in the city towards following up the clues they had given him.